Canto 31, begins with them right on the final edge of Malabolge and ends with them hitting the floor of hell. And it's a canto, therefore, that deals with this movement to um, the last reality in hell that Dante um, has to see, and that Dante, the poet, takes a whole canto to describe um, this movement. I think emphasizes again that this is a much a movement of inner sight as it is of physical geography. Um, what is described in this canto shows how the psychological um, dif distance has to be bridged um, as much as the physical distance of hell. Um, it's that psycho-physical space that we're in. And it begins actually picking up again Dante's experience when he had got um, all agog um, with um, the two bickering souls in the last tenth chasm of Malabolge, um, and where Virgil, if you remember, had said, um, I'll lose patience with you, um, and Dante had been filled with shame, but that shame, which because it could touch his higher nature, had been his way of coming out of the tenth chasm. Um, and at the beginning of Canto 31, um, Dante reflects on it again and says it was a bit like being touched with the lance of Achilles. Um, and it's a really interesting metaphor because um, the lance of Achilles was said to, at its first strike, wound you, but at its second touch, heal you. And I like to think that this, again, is another allusion to how the descent and the ascent are deeply intertwined. Um, that's why. Dante has to travel to hell. That's, in a way, I think, why hell exists, in order that the wound can be allowed, but to become the healing as well. Um, you know, there's a kind of deep mystery in that, I guess to do with how our healing comes about through the reform of our desire, of our will, of our knowledge, of our sight. You know, this whole complicated business that we're not just divine puppets, but they were called to be come divine co-heirs almost, if you know, one can dare to say so. Um, so the descent which wounds um, has a second touch, which actually is the awakening of something that heals like Achilles' lance. Picking up on that inner meaning, it's said that they then move without talking across a place where Dante's not sure if it's night or day. And that is very fascinating because it's like a place that's almost not been created. You remember that in Genesis, God creates over the seven days by separating, um, particularly separating the light from the darkness, the dry land from um, the seas and so on. Um, and that sense of distinction of separation, of knowing the mind, flowing into matter and so giving it form, giving it shape, that now in this deep region of hell, that's hardly had an impact. Um, it's not even possible to tell quite whether it's day or night. Um, that lack of boundary, um, which um, enables us to see, enables us to be conscious, enables us to move towards the light, um, it, it almost gets lost at this moment in hell. Um, so deepening the sense 
um, not just of terror, but of dread, I think, that more profound um, sense of something gone profoundly wrong. And to that can be added just another reflection on this lack of distinction that it's an infernal unity, you might say, as opposed to a heavenly unity and multiplicity. Um, in heaven, we'll find that every part reflects or mirrors or echoes the whole. That's the joyful harmony of heaven. Whereas down here, it's a unity that's regressive, um, you know, going back to the kind of chaotic state before divine light entered the world. Um, and so it's just a kind of grey, undifferentiated mush um, that uh, the, the very life of it um, is being sucked out of it because nothing down here really manages properly to reflect the divine light, but only remember the divine light, you might say, in its absence. Dante, the poet, is left wondering how they're going to see their way forward when suddenly there's the sound of a horn blast. Dante says it was louder than a thunderclap, um, but also full of ominous dread as well. He says it reminds him of Roland's horn, and Roland was a leader in Charlemagne's army against the Saracens, um, and just a century or so before Dante's time, um, this story came back from the Crusades that the rear guard of Charlemagne's army, being led by Roland, um, was betrayed, um, and as the Saracens descended upon the army, um, Roland blew his horn, but the advanced part of the army was too far ahead and so came back too late. So it's a way of Dante saying that the sound of this horn now here in hell fills him with a sense of foreboding. Um, the implication is, is someone about to be slaughtered? Um, are they going to get left behind? Um, is the Divine Herald going to be able to call down um, uh, heaven's um, defences? Um, or are they going to be left here in hell? Um, this is real descent. Um, it is a comedy, um, but that doesn't mean that in the moments of descent, the feeling of terror and dread is not completely real, and in the moment it feels like it can overtake you. Still straining to see ahead, Dante now says to Virgil that he thinks he can see towers emerging out of the fog, and um, Virgil says to him, uh, actually we need to get closer, um, your imagination is not telling the truth. Um, Again, a, a profoundly sort of poignant comment um, as they enter this new region of hell. Dante is having to adjust to this new reality in order that his fantasy can bear him the truth rather than just confusing him. Um, and as if to help with that, Virgil says, but I'll give you an indicator now of what we're about to see. I remember Virgil's being down here before. Um, so his imaginative capacities can fill out what's the truth of this state. And he says they're not actually towers, they're giants. And as they do get closer to them, Dante, the poet, gives us quite a long description of the giants. Um, this long description in our mind's eye, enabling us to sort of move up and down um, the bodies of these giants and so take in something of their scale. Um, Commentators have worked out that they 
seem to be about 35 foot tall, you know, so several times um, more massive than uh, a normal human being. Um, and they stand with their lower half um, reaching down towards the floor of hell. And just from their waist upwards, Dante and Virgil can see them now um, as the upper part of their bodies loom over them in this last part of Malabolge. Um, and we might ask, you know, why a giant's here? Um, a sort of moral reading would be that these are humanoid figures that became too big, too proud. And as we meet um, three of these giants, we'll discover that pride um, is part of their complex. Um, but in a way, that's not so illuminating. Um, you know, we've kind of learned that, um, that pride um, and dishonesty um, towards oneself and towards God as much as towards others um, is what leads to creatures being caught in hell. Um, another um, more speculative possibility, but one I quite like myself, is that giants come from um, an old consciousness. You know, they're part of um, the very early myths of humankind. Um, you know, giants were said to walk the earth in the book of Genesis. Um, and giants feature in a number of um, old, old myths from around the Mediterranean and elsewhere. Um, and I like to think that in this moment of kind of undoing where, um, you know, the day and the night blur, um, it's almost as if consciousness itself um, is losing its capacity to hold on to the present. And so um, dark echoes of the past are come, coming flooding through into Dante's mind, um, including enabling him to see um, these giants from a former era. And that links to, um, you might say, the phenomenology of that more primitive state of mind coming through, because of course we do ourselves um, have the capacity to experience um, these more primitive states too. Um, Dorothy L. Sayers, in her commentary um, on this part of the Inferno, talks about how the giants stand for massive conglomerations of raw emotion um, that are, are undifferentiated by the human mind. And they just exist in a kind of raw state. Um, and indeed, when we meet the giants, we'll see that each one of them seems to be trapped um, in a particular um, state of undifferentiated feeling, rage, um, you know, incoherence. Um, you know, that again, it, it, it fits this part of hell because it's a kind of vitality, but a vitality um, that has got lost in itself um, and so um, can only exist in a kind of um, raw, undifferentiated, basic kind of state. This is living matter, the living matter from which the soul um, has almost departed, it has almost no purchase um, on um, the creature. And this seems to be emphasised in the first giant they meet, who is Nimrod. Um, he is well known um, amongst lovers of Dante for um, being the second character in hell after Plutus to um, utter meaningless words, which has led to some speculation about what he might have said. Um, I think that the whole point is that these are words that don't have a purchase anymore on meaning. That's partly 
what it is to start to fall away from being, to lose contact with the inner spirit. Um, words become meaningless, triviality, jargon, Dorothy L. Sayers puts it, um, pretends to carry meaning and yet really is meaningless. Um, that's what it's like to lose touch with the, the, the deepest and inner source of vitality that gives shape and gives purpose, gives direction to all things. Um, Nimrod is a biblical character who in later traditions um, is called a giant and is associated with the building of the Tower of Babel, um, that a tremendous myth which describes how humanity lost its common language and its ability to communicate not just um, amongst itself but with um, the cosmos itself too, to understand, to see, um, to use this divine gift to receive the soul of heaven um, as words, particularly poetic words, um, can be um, offered to us, um, accepted um, by us to become part of our inner life. Um, you know, the loss of meaning and particularly poetic meaning, soulful meaning, clearly is massively significant to Dante um, as well as to us now. They have an encounter with Nimrod. Virgil's very dismissive. Um, he says, look, Nimrod can't understand himself, let alone understand us. Um, we're going to move on and move on they do. The next giant they see, you know, kind of like an infernal spikes of a crown um, reaching down into the floor of hell um, is um, Ephialtes. Um, he is a giant from Greek myth. Um, he was one of the, the sons of the earth who tried to assault Olympus um, and of course Jupiter turns on them um, and in Dante's mythology Ephialtes finds himself now down in hell. Um, he's chained, he is a violent creature and he's got one arm around his front, one arm around his back with chains wrapped around him. Um, Dante turns to Virgil at this point and says, um, could we see another giant that Dante has read about? Um, and that's the giant Brearius. Now Brearius um, is a giant that Virgil himself had talked about in the Aeneid um, and had given him the most fantastical form of, of all. Um, in the Aeneid it's said that he has a hundred limbs, fifty mouths, all breathing fire. Um, and Virgil says to Dante, he's too far off, we can't see him. Um, we're going to actually come to Antaeus, um, another giant, and um, he's going to be the one that aids us here. Um, but it, it just it's one of these wonderful hiatuses in the Inferno where you wonder why they couldn't see Brearius. Um, I feed it back to this idea about these older states of consciousness, this deep, deep mythology starting to show itself to them in this very unsettled state of mind that they're in. Um, but Brearius, in a way, with his ultra-fantastical form, um, is in a way too primitive, um, even for here, even for now. Um, they can't see him in their minds, uh, so they can't see him as they move around um, this part of hell. Um, there's some things which lie beyond um, even human conception in the most dire and desperate states of mind. Um, and in a way, we're thankful to Virgil that we don't have to see Brearius, that Dante doesn't have to encounter him. Um, it's a sort of moment of strange hope, actually, I think, um, that Dante's curiosity is thwarted. At the mention of Brearius, it's striking that Ephialtes, 
um, shakes with ferocity. Um, he shows his primitive rage. Um, and Dante says that um, he has never been more terrified in all of his experience, um, a terror that would have made him drop dead if he didn't already know that um, Debriarius was bound with all these chains. And in a way, this underlines why they couldn't see Ambrearius, um, because it might have been too much for Dante if he um, found um, Ephialtes so utterly terrifying. Um, but they move on and they come now to Antaeus. Now he is another giant um, from Greek mythology, but he didn't take part um, in the giant's rebellion against Jupiter. Um, and so here in hell, um, he's unbound. Um, but we learn that it's vanity that rules him still. And Virgil recounts the story of Antaeus, which interestingly, he himself didn't think worthy of recording in the Aeneid, um, but here he realises that he's got to flatter Antaeus and so draws on other stories and reminds Antaeus that he killed hundreds of lions um, in the confrontation between Scipio and Hannibal. Um, and he also says to Antaeus, you didn't assault the gods, which is much to your credit. Now, Antaeus doesn't quite buy this, and maybe knowing that Virgil hadn't thought to mention him before, um, and so Dante, so Virgil has to add a, a further bit of flattery when he says, I'm here with Dante, and if you aid us now, Dante is living and will return to life above and remember you. And, and moreover, Virgil adds, I won't have to ask any of the other giants in this round to help us, i.e. your chance for remembrance and renewed fame um, won't be overlooked. Antaeus is indeed charmed. It's an un a nervy moment, I think, because you know Virgil is using flattery and dishonesty and deceit um, to find their way forward. Um, it could go wrong, um, and you know you're reminded of Virgil's previous descent into hell um, with um, uh, the charms of the witch Erichtho, um, wondering whether they're going to work or not here now. Remember, they'd failed to work for the city of Dis. Um, and, you know, there's a sense that Dante the Pilgrim is a, is a little bit nervous here. Um, and when it turns out that Antaeus will comply with them um, in his foolishness, um, luckily for them, um, Virgil grabs Dante. He says, you know, I'll hold you and we'll make one bundle. Um, and in fact, Antaeus lifts them gently and they're carried over the lip of this final circle of hell and descends these dozens of feet um, to be put um, down by Antaeus. Um, it's another wonderful detail of Dante's here because from the mythology we know that Antaeus was killed by Hercules and Hercules was able to kill Antaeus because Hercules learnt that if Antaeus was lifted up from the earth, if his feet lost contact with Gaia, then he became vulnerable. And so this leaning over now um, to um, settle them on the deepest floor of hell um, is a kind of strange repetition of Antaeus' own death when he was lifted. Um, but with, again, a kind of hint of hope, because whilst he's caught up in what Freud would call the repetition compulsion, um, condemned to repeat um, the major trauma of his life, 
um, in this case being killed by Hercules. Um, it, it's possible that it can still be put to good use as it enables Virgil and Dante to continue their descent. So again, this sort of this strange interweaving of hope, um, even in the deepest, darkest reaches of hell, for those who have eyes to see. Dante says that it reminds him of walking under one of the great towers of Bologna um, when a cloud passes over the top um, and the shadow of the tower shoots out before you um, with the sunlight being concealed, making you wonder whether the tower is about to topple over. It's still quite a terrifying moment for him as the giant leans down, but he does. And at the end of this canto, we realise that we have transitioned now to the deepest part of hell and we're left with the two pilgrims on its dark floor. <laughs>